What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence. BI provides research on industries, companies, and expert topics, delivering key data from BI analysts in their given industry. Now, here is your Bloomberg Intelligence research team. Welcome to Chopping It Up, Episode 9. I'm your host, Mike Halen. I'm the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. It's my pleasure to introduce my guest today, Joe Kefauver. Joe is a founding partner of Align Public Strategies, a full-service public affairs and creative firm, and he's the host of the weekly Working Lunch podcast. So you can find Joe's uh, weekly restaurant pod on SoundCloud and Restaurant Business. Thanks for doing this, Joe. Mike, good to be here, pal. Good to, good to, good to talk to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, so Joe's my go-to guy when it comes to politics. Uh, so that's what we're going to get into today. So, you know, let's start out by asking what happened to the red wave. Man, the red wave, talk about a, an ebb tide. The, uh, there was no red wave. Um, you know, I, I think, um, it, it, you know, we were in a, we're in a kind of a, a big political transition in the country where, um, um, the, the, the technology of detecting uh, voter moods and voter intensity has not kept up. And so polling is, is probably as, um, as inconsistent over the last five years as it's ever been. Um, and the technology really hasn't caught up to, to um, you know, accurately measure voter attitude. So what happens is no one really knows, right? And it's funny how everyone's wrong, but everyone's saying, well, my polls are right. And everybody else's polls are right. This is crazy. Um, you know, I think it's difficult. It's going to be increasingly difficult for the Republicans to, you know, whether, whether they win here or win there to create a working majority. You see what's happening this week in Congress. I mean, they can't even get a leader. Congress isn't even sworn in yet. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be partisan, but it, 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 you can't help being partisan when you're talking about this stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, they find themselves in a position where, if you get remember, you know, for the first time in, I think, American history, a major political party did not have a political platform in an election cycle. The Republicans had no platform, you know, and that doesn't give you a blueprint for governance, right? And so they've, they've, they've kind of become the anti-governance party. You're seeing that play out in Washington right now. So what that means is, for voters, to answer your question, there's not a lot to glom onto except for, well, he's better than the other guy, right? And that is not a that is not a winning long term strategy. It wasn't a winning long term strategy this time. And I think what what they're finding, and whether you know, who knows what's in the back room, what's going on, but you know, uh, Americans, you know, for better for worse, we can talk about oh, we want limited government, we want this, but they like to see Congress legislating. They they like. You know, polling after polling after polling for you know generations, they want to see Congress legislating. And Congress, whether you whether you agree with it or not agree with what what they did in the last few years, they were legislating. And so I think there was a a, a wellspring of support out there 
um, that punditry didn't acknowledge. And I think the Republicans, you know, just ran some terrible candidates. They just ran some terrible candidates. And you know, these races can, can, can be very personal, you know, and, and a real popular person that doesn't have real popular views can, can win. And an unpopular person that has, you know, popular views can lose. And I think they just, it's a combination of all those things, Mike. So that's a long winded answer to a short question, but um, there was no way. And, and as such, there's no policy, there's no mandate to govern going forward, which is difficult for your, you know, your clientele, the business community, restaurants, you know, they, they want to manage risk, right? They want it. They want some level of clarity, good or bad and different as to how to plan for what's coming at them in this current environment does not allow restaurant executives to have any sense of, of certainty about what the next couple of years look like. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And, um, you know, I guess that leads me right into my next question, right? So what does the uh, Republican House and a Democratic setting mean for restaurants? Is stimulus done? And, and, and what, what can we expect over the next two years? Well, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen. Certainly, certainly in the first, you know, let's say, let's divide up into quarters. For the first six months of the new Congress, you're going to see, especially if, um, if McCarthy pulls out this, you know, he is contorting himself and con- conceding by the minute. And depending on what he gives away, you know, I think what you're going to see from the Republican House is just investigations. They're not going to be in, in the governing and legislating and talking about tax law. The Senate will be pushing those types of things. Obviously, the White House will. But I think you're going to see a stalemate. I think the big piece is for restaurants is the activism of the Biden administration at the regulatory level will go full on. And, you know, they are doubling down. You, you saw this week, he renominated a whole slew of appointees to the EEOC and other, other, other governing bodies. Um, not Jessica Lumen to wage an hour, but we expect that any, you know, any time now she's fairly, you know, for that position, she's fairly uncontroversial, uh, even to Republicans. Um, so they're going to they're going to double down and they're you know, they can't govern legislatively. They're going to govern regulatorily. And we've already seen that in the first two years of the Biden administration. But what this NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, has been doing is some pretty unprecedented stuff. I mean, they have been pedaled to the metal and that's not going to ebb anytime soon. Is there any regulations on restaurants, um, you know, outside of the NLRB and, and kind of um, the, the, cha- the changes we may see in franchise law. We'll get to that later. But are there any regulations that uh, the restaurant industry should be particularly concerned about right now? Yeah, we're in the middle of a rulemaking process on a joint employer at a number of agencies. And the restaurant industry, especially the franchise business community, needs to watch that very, very closely. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the, the powers that be want to, um, you know, have shared responsibility between Mike Kalen franchisee and company X franchisor on workplace violations, labor protocols, uh, unfair labor practices. Right now, you know, in our current world, you know, the, the company's kind of shielded from the franchisee. The 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 the, the current administration wants to wants to remove that shield and, and make that joint liability because it's easier to go after make it up McDonald's corporately than it is to go after Mike Halen, the, you know, three unit franchisee. Um, so you're going to see in every different, every agency, whether it's Department of Labor, National Labor Relations Board, uh, you know, other agencies will have their own joint employer rules. So this is a, you know, this is three or four agencies we play in this. We obviously the independent contractor in the restaurants 
don't employ a lot of independent contractors except when it comes to some shared services, maintenance services, the buildings and so forth. But all the laws around independent contractors are getting rewritten. I think uh, other pieces that are important to restaurant tours, you know, we talk about the 80-20 rule and, and, and regulations around work, you know, off the, not off the clock work, but non-tipped work for tipped employees. And where is that, where is that guiding line? So there's going to be, you know, more energy in that space as well. So it's a very, you know, labor is number one for these, for this administration. And we're, we're the number one labor intensive industry. So there's, there's really nothing that, you know, the labor department and its sub agencies, whether it's OSHA, whether it's, you know, are doing that doesn't directly affect restaurateurs. I think some of your bigger business model issues that we've seen that we, that the industry has worked on in the last couple of years, paid leave, for example, nothing's going to happen federally at the, you know, paid leave. Uh, the Republicans have, uh, pivoted not insignificantly on this issue there's a, you know, a model that both um, uh, Vermont and New Hampshire have adopted uh, with Republican governors and Democratic legislatures that's kind of a shared responsibility type of model between employees and employers and and having private uh, interests bid on running those kind of those um, those those insurance funds those paid leave funds. I think that's a model that uh, if anything happens at the federal level, which is highly unlikely, it, it would be something like that. You, you've seen on the far political right, instead of uh, opposing paid leave, and this is kind of post-pandemic, but opposing paid leave from a business perspective, they're embracing paid leave as a pro-family issue. So there's energy on the right for the first time in a number of different ways on the paid leave issue. I don't think there's a window in this particular Congress for that. Um, but you'll see states, you know, existing, you'll see states that have paid leave programs, make them more robust. Um, I don't think there's going to be any action on minimum wage at the federal level. Um, um, you know, interesting enough, you go back historically over the last 30 years for, for many of the minimum wage, um, increases we've had Republicans in charge of, you know, one house of Congress or the white house when that's happened. So never say never, but highly unlikely. On the wage stuff, I think it, I think the regulatory piece is where companies really need to be watching, and they have been for and you know the last two years have been a good lesson in that. Gotcha. All right, so there's been some back and forth in California over the last week regarding the Fast Act. So where does that stand right now? So there's going to be a hearing. So to, to bring the audience up to speed, um, just before the new year, um, the. Uh, the uh, the state uh, said, "Hey, we're we're going with this regulation as of January one. We're going to start enforcing it." And the business community said, "Hey, wait a minute. We we were told by current law and validated by you, the state, that if we uh, uh, submitted the appropriate number of signatures, that this basically creates a to run our own ballot initiative unwinding this law. That it creates a stay situation where this law will not go into effect. That's the guidance you've given us. That's the guidance we've had." you know, forever in this state. And uh, for reasons not yet clear, we can speculate and we'll go into that as to why the state said, nah, pedal the metal, we're gonna enforce this as of January 1. So the the coalition, if you will, the National Restaurant Association, uh, International Franchise Association, Chamber of Commerce, other organizations, uh, collectively uh, filed suit to for a stay. A judge granted that stay. And the first hearing, I believe is January 13th, so the end of, Next week, um, 
there'll be a kind of first hearing in court as to how to proceed here. Um, so, you know, we've all been speculating as to, as to why, um, why the state, you know, it was political pressure from the SDIU. Of course it was. But does, does the state really believe it had legal standing? Because most of the legal minds in the industry think the state has no legal standing here. Um, and it's the pro forma, you know, shameless giveaway to the unions just to, you know, I, 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 it, it's an un, unconscionable use of taxpayer money. If they know they have no legal uh, uh, leg to stand on, yet they're going to drag the state and the taxpayers into court. So who knows what, what's happening? Maybe, you know, they have lawyers too. Maybe they have a pathway. I don't know. Uh, but it's up in the air and we'll know more on January 13th and we'll know how serious they are about trying to enforce this and what their rationales are. But uh, for right now, the next week and a half, the law is stayed. Um, and, you know, uh, Mike, I don't know, you know, you've been covering the industry a long time. I've been covering the industry a long time. You know, this is, this is some pretty big ball politics that the industry has been playing the last couple of years. I'm, you know, what, what Sean Kennedy NRA pulled off with the restaurant relief fund is, you know, unbelievable bipartisan support for this industry uh, during, the, during the pandemic. And this activity in California is pretty, pretty epic as well. For us to get together as an industry, raise the kind of money that we did, play the ballot game, which we don't really play a lot, uh, get the signatures, get something on the ballot and qualified, and now we're in court. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of new day in the industry. And the industry you know, knows that they're against the ropes, against a very, very well-funded uh, opponent. We still tend to, you know, for... You know, you add up the market caps of our big corporations, you get an astronomical number. We still have very short, short crocodile arms, alligator arms relative to our market caps for funding these kinds of things. But we're doing a lot better than we've ever done traditionally. So we'll we'll know uh, on the 13th kind of what what the environment looks like, where this judge will be. Uh, but the the broader question for the industry is, you know, what does it look like if other states and cities, you know. Uh, pursue copycat legislation, if you will. And, and so the industry is, is mobilized and there's a target list of about 10 states, five to 10 states where political winds are ripe, the political environment is ripe for a fact act type of, of bill. We see some at the municipal level right now, Minneapolis is kind of the hot spot where we may see some level of um, fast act like legislation. Uh, we already have a similar kind of model in Detroit. The one in Minneapolis doesn't Directly, it's all employers, not a, a QSR specific thing. Uh, but this is this is the wave, man. And um, the, the industry knows, I think, uh, soberly that the old days of HR twenty two twenty two in Congress, it, you know, is those days have left us, and we're playing ball on the ballot in a lot of states. Uh, we're going to play ball municipally in a lot of states, and it's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, well, it's great that you know the the industry, which is so fragmented. I think that's part of the reason why they they haven't been able to to, to join hands and, and fight some of these regulations um, and legislation in the past. Uh, it's great that they they they're starting to come together to to fight for what's best for the industry. Um, so you mentioned you know Minneapolis being a municipality, um, and you also mentioned five to ten states. So what states do you think could be fast followers, and and are they going to wait? I guess, uh, you know, obviously they're going to wait until next week, but if this goes to referendum, are they going to wait until the referendum comes through for them to to start pushing harder on this? How do you think that's going to? Yeah, well, yeah. So let me take it kind of methodical order, you know, right after the FAST Act passed uh, in California, right after it got through the process, 
within about a half an hour of the final vote, literally, Michael, I'm talking 30 minutes of the final vote, um, the, the SEIU put out on Twitter uh, a you know a victory lap, spiked the ball, and listed about six or seven states where they're taking their roadshow to next. So they're the ones that first said, "Hey, you ain't seen nothing. This is the warm up act, right?" Uh, so we're we're looking at a lot of those uh, traditional you know, blue trifecta states, and maybe some of the new blue trifecta states, four states uh, now have four more states after the 2022 elections now have uh, total blue control. Uh, So those are, you know, Massachusetts and Maryland, top of that list. Uh, But we're looking in Washington. We're, we're, we're getting our act together in Oregon, Illinois, uh, New York, New Jersey area where you are, Maryland, Massachusetts, kind of the the usual suspects. but with Massachusetts and Maryland kind of added to that list now because of change in their leadership as well. So it's going to be a busy year. Um, I do know that um, 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 the restaurant in you know, the association, National Restaurant Association, IFA, are really working very well, very much in conjunction, very closely uh, on this issue. And, and we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, Cooperation, a lot of money being spent, uh, a lot of money being raised and strategies put in place to really kind of bolster us going forward. And, um, you know, it seems that SEIU seems to have some uh, momentum here. Uh, but at the unit level, you know, what we're seeing is that the unionization momentum seems to have slowed at Starbucks. You know, the effort seems to be stalling here at about 270 stores. They're not close to a CBA. You know, have the unions lost some of the wind in their sales at the unit level? Or is this something that's just unique to Starbucks? No, I think I think they they have, you know, the Starbucks. It's, it's a good question and a difficult one to answer. I mean, um, you know, with, with attrition rates in this industry, it's, it's a no brainer for Starbucks to go into the old Dean Smith four corners, you know, and just try to run the clock out on, on, on the process because, you know, the, the, the first Starbucks votes were about 12 months ago, 12, 13 months ago. And if you look at those original stores, I'd be interested to see what the turnover rates, how many of those, those people that voted in that union election are still there. Right. Uh, and even, and even Starbucks, I think does pretty well relative to the competitors in that space, but still just average attrition. You got a whole new cast of characters in, in there two years later. Starbucks is smart to try to stretch the process out. They know the math. Um, and so it has kind of fizzled a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, Mike, to, to answer your question, at, at the unit level, it's, fizz, it, it, it's fizzled a little bit. But I think, you know, like everybody's business model changes over time. Look, look, at, look at Bloomberg's business model now versus 20 years ago. I mean, night and day, right? The technology you guys are into, it's just a whole different company, right? Similarly, the unions, you know, for, for 50, 60, 70 years were kind of, you know, myopically focused on collective bargaining agreements. CBAs were uh, the, the, the goal. And, and that's how you measured your success or not. How many places could you actually unionize? And over the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, they have figured out, and probably more over the last five to 10 years to be specific, they have figured out that they don't need CBAs to win. I mean, they're winning the conversation. They're, they have, they, the, 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 the labor community, I, I, I won't say unions, I'll say the labor community because of nonprofits and activist groups and all that kind of stuff. They have won the conversation around our business model. 
Look at our business model now versus five years ago. I mean, we used to laugh. The whole, we had belly laughs about 15 bucks an hour. How crazy that was. Now you can't get anybody 15 bucks an hour, right? You, and there, it, this was happening before the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic expedited. But they won the national conversation on our model. Most people don't think our business model is a great model, right? Um, and so whether it's paid leave, they are, we, were, we were exposed during the pandemic and a lack of paid leave policies. Obviously, the wage stuff is, is worse than foremost. So they have forced so many changes to the business model of this industry outside of a CBA that, you know, by any means, except for dues revenue, they, they have, a, they can be spiking the football. And I don't know of any time, you know, you think about historically the relationship between the union and the democratic party, you can go back and you can see George Meany, you know, sitting at the desk of FDR, right. And, and the unions have always had a close association with the democratic party, but for most of the last, Hundred years, the Democratic Party has been run by Southerners, and um, they they don't have any relationship with unions at all. The the union, lack of a better term, dominance ownership of the current Democratic Party and the progressive direction of it uh, is unprecedented. I mean, they have won. They have they have literally intellectual uh, control over a big swath of the agenda of one of the two major governing parties in the in the country. I think it's, been, it's fascinating to watch. They've always been a, a big interest group. They've always been a big, you know, every president's always addressed the AFL-CIO meeting every year. You know what I mean? It's, it's, but they run the show now. I mean, they run the show in a bunch of states. It used to be when I when I first started in this industry, that number one, I did it. I did a, it's a true story, Michael. I did an assessment when I was at Walmart of how most powerful, five most powerful unions in state capital. And in about, going back, you know, 20 plus years, but, but and so many of them, the vast majority was in teachers' unions. And now that the SEIU and some of the, the unions that, that touch our industry the most have risen in prominence in so many state capitals. Sacramento's is the tip of the iceberg. And they have really won the conversation. So it's at the unit level, you're Mike, you're Mike Hale and Franchise DX. Your business model looks, I don't know how it could look any different if you were unionized five years ago versus not being unionized now. It's night and day of five five years ago. And so they've, they've kind of won in a lot of ways. I always say they, 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 they might have won the, the arbitration, but they've won the conversation. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of it is, is you know, cultural, right? Um, you know, I had a guest on uh, months ago saying, you know, they made unionization cool, right? And so I think that's, that's yeah. kind of helped them make some of the inroads at the at the unit level, right? And 100%. Like and we, we have... We have, you know, going back since 1965, this is the, when Gallup first started polling this particular issue, uh, union acceptance, union popularity has never been higher than it is today. And, you know, what, 40 plus years of, of doing that polling. So it's, and again, I think the more, because we haven't had a strong union movement, so it's more hypothetical and, oh, isn't this great, blah, blah, blah. When you get in the, the nooks and crannies of it and people start to, you know, really understand what's going on. I would you assume those numbers are going to drop significantly. Um, but yeah, when they realize that um, that the you know the hourly label is going to be replaced by robotics, right? I mean, it's just going to yeah that issue in our yeah. in our industry, right? Yeah. Which is very uh, under um, penetrated in terms of technology. So um, I think so that's, I think one of the things harsh reality in, in our business yeah. that it, you know people are going to be replaced. Yeah, and so I, I think you've got three kind of political currents that are are kind of or, or four, I should say, that are kind of 
presenting challenges for restaurant companies and restaurant execs. Obviously, you've got a very informed and mobilized employee base that you've never had over the last 50 years, right? You've got customers that are dialed in, you know, for better or for worse, on what informed customer base that often doesn't see eye to eye with the industry position, right? You've got, um, um, you know, the, the, our general backstop for the last 50 years, the Chamber of Commerce Republican Party has left the building. Elvis has left the building and, and they're not, they're attacking corporate America as much as anybody is, right? And so you've got these, these cross currents. Uh, you've got a, 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 a completely cohesive Democratic Party on these labor model issues. I mean, there's almost... Almost no, except for Joe Manchin on the minimum wage issue, which was a deal <clears throat> waiting to waiting to happen. You've got complete cohesion in one political party on your issues you've never had before. So, if you're a restaurant company executive, the, the, the political environment is so different over the last three or four years than it has been preceding thirty or forty years. It all kind of looked the same, and it, it's it's hard for some of our folks. So as a general rule, you know, we have a lot of execs that are not politically dialed in, you know, we're not a regulated industry. We're not banking, we're not finance, you know, we're not energy that are just airlines that are just constant governments in your business every day. We tend to be a, a little arm's length, you know, and a lot of our executives grew up in that system and, you know, aren't, aren't as, you know, familiar with the nuances of it. And I, I think, and my point being, we tend as an industry to be hell no on everything, right? No, we pose that, we pose that. We're not, we're not for anything. And I think time has kind of run out on that strategy. And I think, you know, you, you see businesses, you know, making major, major uh, announcements in the sustainability space or the ESG space. And, you know, the, the businesses are moving forward faster than kind of some of their, their political allies are. So my point being, I think we're running out of, out of friends in the process if we're intransigent. So we've got to, I think businesses have to come to the table and say, hey, here's a, here's a paid leave scheme that we can work with. Let's, let's give this away. Hey, here's a portable benefit scheme. Let's have that conversation. Hey, here's a more proactive. Here's a, uh, more proactive. Here's a, uh, a recycling thing that maybe we can, we can work into our model that it won't damage, you know, that we're her business model in our, in our operations. We've got to, we've got to do that. We've never been really good in the industry at that, but we've, we've got no, we don't have a lot of allies now to be that backstop that we used to have. And so I, I think it, it's, it, the industry is going to have to pivot the way it looks at these issues and manages them going forward. And that's not appeasing. That's just recognizing what the playing field is. Yeah, but yeah. They're, they're on their heels though. Right. Like, I, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, at the top, right. About the Republicans. I mean, they, they, the left has got them on their heels and they're just the party of no and and they don't really have a platform and, and it's an issue, right? So it seems like the restaurants are are kind of in the same place where they're just kind of playing defense and uh, you know, reacting as opposed to being out in front and leading. So is there anything that, you know, you, you had some great examples of, of how they can kind of contribute to the legislative process, but is there anything that they should be lobbying for in 2023? Yeah, you know, I, I, I yes, I, I, I think there's some some big picture stuff that they should at least be starting conversations on to, to get enough traction that you can officially move on to lobbying. But you know, we have this, we've got to revamp how we look at labor 
in this country. We we have a we have a uh, an entry level gap. The, the, the labor shortage was happening in in our space long before the pandemic. I was I was doing presentations in 2015, 2016 talking about labor shortage. Right? Never been fully we, staffed. Never. Never, you know, and then and then we 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 did all this this immigration stuff and the wall and all this kind of stuff. Then we had the pandemic, you know. If you look at you know, you're a finance guy. Look what what's happening in England with Brexit. I mean, it, who, whose economy is in worse shape in in, in Europe? It's England because they don't have bodies. They don't they 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 cut their immigration. Now they have no bodies. They have the worst inflation of any country in Europe. Conversely, we we have, you know, this dearth of uh of available staff that's willing to work in our spaces and it's like you're either you know the, the entry level of the rung of the ladder or you're or you're white collar executive you know you're inside some company and we need to develop a a a, a, a class of worker um and it's kind of a full project I'm working on so it's not not fully based but we need to we need to reform the labor model so that we can develop a class of worker that we can have some kind of pay scale around, if you will, have some kind of training regimen, apprenticeship regimen around, have some type of portable, minimal safety net, portable benefit structure around, and then have the tax code appreciate that and and create this worker that's in this hybrid between what we have now, the traditional FTE and a salaried position. I think I think the economy, the modern economy, has evolved past our old-fashioned way of classifying and and treating workers. I think it's a huge issue that this industry should be leading at finding the next way. I don't have all the answers about the next way is. I just know that there's this gap. And so, if you're 20 year old Mike Halen, and you know you're 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 walking into you're looking for your first job, I. We're, we're going to lose everybody to Amazon because we don't have, we're not competitive on the wage front. We're not competitive on the benefit front. We're not competitive on the training front. And we're, we're losing people out of the industry. Isn't that we're losing Burger King's not losing them to Popeye. It's we're all losing them to Amazon and other industries because there's this ecostructure around them uh, that we have not formulated. And I don't think we're going to do that. I don't think companies are going to do that on their own. But there's a way we can maintain our competitiveness by kind of creating that space in the labor code. And I think, you know, that would be a 10-year process, but it's something we could actually contribute a great deal to that conversation, the expertise, and be for something, have a very different conversation about how wages and benefits fit into the overall thing. That's a big issue. I think, I think on the recycling, you know. Talk about recycling, we already looked at recycling kind of this, you know, green, you know, Bernie Sanders sandal wearing issue. But man, it, it, it's a it's a it's an economic issue. You're 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 governor, you're mayor, you're running out of land to bury trash, right? The Chinese won't take our stuff anymore. We we we're, we we have an economic need. We got to deal with this stuff. Um, I think the industry, in the industry, especially industry, right, it's just it's so much waste, and it's coming. It, it, there's no way it's not coming. So we can either kind of you know be in charge of our own fate, or we can let it happen to us. And we've seen with some of these producer responsibility bills in, in laws in Maine and. Uh, other places, it's it's happening. I think we we have an opportunity to control our own destiny in that space. Uh, and I think I think the energy kind of renewable energy space. You know, we're talking about natural gas bans, and you know, I, I I just think there's a lot of big picture issues that we that that we should really be um, 
a voice in, and we still kind of play small ball on some of these unit level nickel, what I would consider nickel dime is just scheduling or, you know, meal breaks and all this kind of stuff. Like, man, we got to revamp our entire labor structure if this industry is going to continue to survive in, 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 without being completely automated because we're losing our workers to other industries. So I think that's a that's the things I think. idea for, for uh, you know, and, and, you know, for me, a, a federal minimum wage is, it's like, it's archaic, right? Is a, is a 16 year old that's starting at his first day at a McDonald's worth what a 22 year old is at his first day at McDonald's is that 16 year old working in say Arkansas, you know, does he deserve the same pay as a 16 year old in California? Right. So just having one blanket wage for the entire country doesn't make sense. And we know that it, it, you're really just legislating against those states that are, you know, paying, uh, that have lower minimum wages, uh, statewide. Right. Um, so to me, it just seems like an archaic way to try to lift wages, right. There has to be a better way to do it. Yeah. And I, and I kind of follow, even though I don't, I don't work in the space, Uber, Lyft, these guys, they're not my clients, but I do watch, you know, they, they are a hybrid of our labor model. You know, they are independent contractors as drivers by and large. Um, they're not full-time employees, not salary employees. They're, they're, they are operating intentionally in this gray area. And you're seeing uh, Australia played with some some ideas. There's a, there's a kind of a beta project going on uh, on Ontario right now about a kind of portable benefits regime for this class of workers and, and some wraparound safety net. And, you know, Uber and Lyft are probably doing it to retain drivers and keep regulators off the back, right? But in that model, there's there's... There's, so if you're that 16-year-old, you know, let's say you're an 18-year-old, you're a high school graduate, you know, you're in school, you're, you're training for X, you don't have health care, blah, blah, blah. If, if, we could, if we could say, look, uh, we're going to classify Mike Kalen as a Schedule P worker, whatever you want to call it, but here's that pay band he can make between 13 and 16 bucks an hour, depending on what he does. He's only going to work 30 hours a week, but we're going to contribute like social security, like any other employer, we're going to contribute some piece of his paycheck to a portable benefit scheme. So he has paid leave where he can go see a doctor. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're going to work with the state in their uh, workforce development training programs. We're going to make sure Mike's in those, so he's building skills. So there's all this wraparound around that worker. We could probably start retaining some workers in the future. Um, but we've got to get out of the box of thinking about just starting minimum wage and scheduling paid leave, which we've been doing for 40 years. So long, long winded answer to a short question. Yeah, but those, but are, those are things we should be thinking about. Yeah. Some great topics. Um, all right. So I was reading an article this morning about shareholder proposals, targeting political spending are expected to kind of ramp up this year. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I was thinking of Michael Jordan at the time. It's like, if you're a restaurant, I'd want to be Michael Jordan, right? I wouldn't want to make my political affiliations known, right? Because I don't want to piss off half my potential customer base. But, you know, maybe that's me. But what's your advice to your clients about making political donations in such a charged environment? <clears throat> you know, that's, that's such a great question. I, I think there are ways to spend either corporate dollars or personal political dollars or PAC dollars, whatever you want, whatever jar you want to pull them in, to impact public policy uh, in a more effective way now than giving Congressman Michael Halen 5,000 bucks at his fundraiser. I, I think that's a, that's a relic of the path, right? But there are ways 
um, to either through policy organizations, you know, partnering with the national governors. I'm just making it up. He's making the, you know, but, you know, getting, you know, if, if, if instead of having a $300,000 to a bunch of congressmen that are, can't even pick a speaker, uh, why don't you get $300,000 to the U.S. Conference of Marriage to come up with a business-friendly uh, recycling program? And, you know, whatever that is, I think there are ways for dollars to impact the process other than the way of, here's a check for, we're going to go out fundraiser, we're all going to stand around our suits and our cocktail, and he's going to tell us what we want to hear. And, you know, Mike, I love the convenience store industry. You're the greatest employers in the Oh, wait a minute, restaurant? Oh, I love the restaurant industry. You're the greatest. I mean, they just all wind up, right? It's just such an antiquated way to do stuff. And I think they're better used to it. So I think a lot of companies, you've seen companies in our industry close down their packs, right? Um, because in the, way, in the wake of the Citizens United case, what was that, 2012, maybe? You know, the, the, the driving force in American political money are high net worth individuals, you know? And when, you know, Millionaire X can write a $30 million check to this fund and millionaire Y can write a 30 million. What is company wise $2,500 pack check to Mike Halen? It's a, it's a joke. You know, it doesn't even matter. So I think, there, I think we, we have to reexamine our political business model. Uh, and that's been, you know, atrophying for a long time. I don't think pack is the way, but you know, the restaurant industry by and large, we, we have, and we've struggled and I, I'm not, complaining or pointing fingers, but we've struggled for years to harness our biggest political strength, which is our footprint, right? There's no, you can't draw a legislative municipal city council, you know, dog catcher district small enough that it has, doesn't have a bunch of restaurants in it, right? And we, if we could ever mobilize that grassroots army, we really wouldn't need political dollars. So we haven't been able to do that. Again, to your point, we're such a spread out industry, you know, I've always kind of said we're, we're not an industry, we're just an archipelago of millions of tiny little islands out there. And it's hard to, it's hard to be a nation sometimes when you're, when you're structured like that. And, but that's our, you know, grass, I've always said that we should, you know, we should organize ourselves more like an interest groups, more, more like interest groups than trade associations because of our footprint so spread out. We're not a capital intensive, we're labor intensive. And, you know, I would, I'd rather us act like the, 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 the National Rifle Association and, instead of the National Restaurant Association in terms of being a grassroots army based, you know, entity and, um, you know, AARP or whatever it is. I always thought that was a better model for us, but that would take 30 years to change too. But they, we've always been working. But it seems like that difficult. that's the case though, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's hard because, you know, in a lot of, a lot of industries, you know, the, the employees and the, uh, the managers on a lot step on a lot of issues. We've never enjoyed that in the industry. We, we always tend to be kind of cross purposes with our employees on, on political issues. So it's harder. Uh, but we got a lot of operators out there, a lot of restaurateurs out there. We should have millions of voices on issues. You know, and going back to Fast Act, we started this conversation. You know, we had major, major employers that have major operations in California and five or six California based that did almost nothing on, on, on Fast Act in terms of, you know, weighing into the conversation and getting their franchisees or, people into those meetings. We, we didn't get out spent in California, out lobbied out, we got out political, we got out grassrooted, you know, and, uh, and, um, that's, that's the worry for these other States is in, in California, if you think about it, I know we're probably running over your time here, pal, but, um, there was, while the political bar was very high 
you know, in terms of the union strength in California, how much dominance they have over the governing process there. That was the high water mark for our organization as well. I mean, we had lots of companies based in California. Every brand's got operations. We had we have a huge industry footprint in California, and we didn't realize, you know, two percent of it in this fight, right? We're not set up that way in Washington and Oregon. We're not set up that way in a lot of these New York, a lot of these states. And so if we if 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 we underperformed in, in California with the playing field as it was, man, we could be in a world of hurt in some of these other states. So it's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out. All right. Well, fingers crossed for, for good outcomes for our, our rest, restaurant li- listeners, man. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Joe, okay. you're great. Thank you so much for doing this again. Uh, where can um, members of the audience find you if they're, they're seeking your public affairs knowledge? Uh, feel free to call us at uh, Align Public Strategies, and it's joe.keefauver, K-E-F-A-U-V-E-R, at alignpublicstrategies.com. Happy to uh, engage any conversation, answer questions, whatever I can do to help move the ball forward, my friend, as, as, as do you. So appreciate all you do, Mike. Uh, you have a, a, a great gift of taking very complicated stuff and making it user-friendly and simple. And I love reading your stuff because it's one of the few things I can understand. So I do appreciate all that you do as well. So. Kudos to you. I'm, I'm glad you find it useful, man. Well, uh, listen, you're yeah. the man. Thanks again for doing this. Uh, we'll speak soon. All right. Thanks for listening in. All right, man. See you, pal. Joe, thanks, man. You're great. Bloomberg Intelligence is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg Intelligence should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.